It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The attack on Washington, D.C. came in the heat of August. The mob was British. Its troops sacking the grand buildings of government before burning them to the ground. One casualty of the flames was the nascent collection of the Library of Congress. To replace the lost books, lawmakers bought Thomas Jefferson's 6,500 volumes. And when, in 1897, the library grew too big for its original home in the capital, the stately Beaux-Arts-style building constructed to house the books was named after the third president. Today, the Thomas Jefferson building is just one of the homes of the largest library in the world, holding over 170 million items. It's the task of a bipartisan group of five senators and five members of the House to sit on the Joint Committee of Congress on the Library and oversee the collection. Of all the committee assignments available, it's not the most headline-grabbing, especially compared with the one looking at the events of a year ago, the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the US Capitol. This is Checks and Balance. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what have we learned so far from the January 6th committee? Donald Trump was planning to mark the anniversary of the attack on the Capitol with a press conference at his Florida home. But earlier this week, he called off the event, blaming what he called the total bias and dishonesty of the January 6th unselect committee of Democrats, two failed Republicans and the fake news media. He had been expected to launch a no-holds-barred attack on the committee, part of an ongoing effort by Trump and his allies to obstruct and undermine its work. Without much Republican cooperation, What can the committee really achieve? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are you doing? Happy New Year. How is New Year for you? My New Year's Eve would make our weekly editorial meetings look like Ibiza. But it was a nice holiday, and it was interesting this week to watch the different ways that Republicans and Democrats marked the anniversary of January 6th. There was a huge divergence between each party's response and how they talked about it, which was noteworthy, if not surprising. What did you make of Joe Biden's speech? I thought it was pretty good. I mean, he's not a great orator. He says often in his speeches, this is not about me, this is about us, this is about democracy. I think he hammered home his point well, which is that you have to face up to the events of January 6th. And also he underlined the reality that he was lawfully elected president, which is pretty astonishing that he needs to do that. But he does. And I think he did it well. 
Fasman, the happiest of New Year's to you. How are you doing? I know you've got COVID in the house at the moment, so things are a bit tough on the home front. Yeah, thank you, John. Happy New Year to you, too. We do have COVID. My youngest son has it. He is feeling a little under the weather, but in good spirits. But as a result, we are beginning uh, 2022 in family quarantine um, with a snowstorm just now. So we're doing okay. Is there enough snow to get out a sled? Or can you, I guess you can't do that because you're quarantining. Or can you? I don't know what the rules are anymore. I don't know. There is enough snow to sled, and there's a really nice hill not far from where we live where my kids like to go. I think my youngest is probably not up to sledding, um, but I may do some sledding myself this morning without my kids. I love the idea of your son's noses pressed against the window while you gleefully careen down a hill. It's tempting. And John, just before we get into the work of the January 6th committee, what was your take on Joe Biden's speech? Do you agree with Charlotte largely? Yeah, I thought it was a very, very good speech. As Charlotte said, he's not a great orator, but I thought that speech was forceful and direct, and I thought it was excellent. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest, and because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He can't accept he lost. So this week, we're going to be examining the after effects in American politics of January 6th and also looking at the work of the January 6th committee that was set up to investigate what happened. John, can you tell us a bit about that committee, about how it was set up and what it's supposed to be doing? So the select committee was set up to investigate the attacks of January 6th. It was modeled on the panel that investigated the September 11th terrorist attacks. You'll remember that panel was bipartisan and produced a fairly scathing report that looked at America's readiness for those attacks. I think the hope initially was that this committee would do much the same thing, but it ran into near total Republican resistance. So the committee, as it stands now, has on it seven Democrats and just two Republicans, uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, both of whom voted to impeach Donald Trump and are somewhat on the outs with the rest of their party. And so even though its intent was to be bipartisan, it ended up being, it is a very Democratic-heavy committee. It has subpoena power, and so it's been gathering testimony. I understand that Mike Pence's staff has been especially helpful to them. But its purpose is to sort of look into the attacks, say what happened, and figure out a way to avoid something like that happening again. All right. Thank you. James Astle is our Washington bureau chief, and he writes the Lexington column every week. This week's column is about the Capitol insurrection one year on. And I talked to him earlier about what the January 6th committee has uncovered so far. We've been told some interesting things about the debate inside the White House in the run-up to the insurrection. We know that schemes to steal the election from Joe Biden had been banded around in the most brazen way by senior Trump officials. That was kind of shocking and kind of new. We might have imagined it, but we've seen some evidence of that. We've also learned some things about the conversation inside the Trump inner circle, in particular messages that were being sent from Donald Trump's children to him during the insurrection, messages that were being sent to him from Fox News, uh, talking heads, supporters of his during the insurrection saying, turn it down, uh, get on TV, tell them to leave the Capitol building, this has gone far enough. And we know that 
hours passed and Trump did nothing in response to those pleas. This was remarkable because those same Fox News talking heads the very same day were denying that uh, what they had warned of had actually happened. They were denying that this was a Trump mob, that this was out-of-hand violence in the Capitol building. So we got sort of a snapshot of their hypocrisy and through that also some confirmation of Trump's slowness to act, to turn off the mob. But the really crucial stuff we we are still waiting on because really the target of this inquiry is the degree of involvement in planning by Trump and other members of his inner circle. We want to know whether the sort of official Republican Party machine was in any way cognizant of this insurgent plan. And we're not getting those answers because the inquiry is being currently pretty successfully obstructed by Trump and others in his circle on a apparently spurious claim of executive privilege. It seems clear that Trump and his advisors think they've got a good chance of sort of running down the clock on this inquiry. They've got a very reasonable hope of Republicans taking the House in November at the midterms. So they think that if they can just put sand in the wheels of the inquiry for some months, for a year more, which is not inconceivable, maybe Republicans will take the House and just polax the inquiry at the first opportunity. It seems quite plausible to me that there was, as you say, this fairly well-developed, you know, sophisticated plan for, uh, frankly, stealing the election, right? But it seems that the insurrection and the people storming the capital are a sort of, you know, separate but related thing, right? It's quite unlikely that there's an email or a text message or something from anyone at Trump HQ or in the White House saying, okay, lads, now go for it. Now's your time to storm the Capitol. I mean, I think if people are expecting something like that to show up, their expectations are wholly unrealistic, don't you think? No, I, I, I agree with you. I, you know, what, what I think is important is the idea of Trump in the end, being brought to heel, even to testify, even to present evidence to Congress. That that would seem like a victory of sorts, and perhaps it would advance our understanding of the insurrection. But you're right. Of course, you're right. There probably was no smoking gun, or at least no smoking gun that we don't already have. We know that there were people at the highest levels of the American government, people around Trump or advising Trump, who wanted this or something like this violence to happen. We know that once the violence, to some degree premeditated, probably to a very large degree not premeditated but organic, began, Trump didn't intervene to stop it. He wanted the thing to run its course, to see where his supporters could take him, see how far they could advance his interests. And we know, too, that his party have subsequently tried to protect him, obviously fearing that he was culpable, having said, many Republican leaders having said that he was responsible for the insurrection. Maybe that's all we need to know. Charlotte, can I start with you? What do we know about January the 6th now that we didn't know a year ago in the immediate aftermath. What has this committee uncovered? You know, What else have other news reports uncovered that, that struck you as kind of significant or interesting that helps us to understand what, what happened on that day and why it happened? Some of the most striking things have been the exchanges between Mark Meadows and various organizers and other members of staff 
uh, Mark Meadows being the chief of staff for Trump at the time. So there was an email from Meadows saying that the National Guard would be available to, quote, protect pro-Trump people, which is pretty amazing, the idea of the National Guard being used for political purposes, frankly. There are emails and texts about a plan to send alternate electors to Congress, a plan to which Mark Meadows responded, quote, I love it, and we have a team on it. So I think it's pretty apparent that both that the the way that they were responding to this national security crisis was political, and that they were plans within the White House to John Prito's point, there are two things going on here, right? Is one, how they responded to the events on January 6th. And the second are the plans that were underway, concrete plans around subverting the election results. And you had as a follow-up from that, that nutty Peter Navarro interview in which he was annoyed at the protesters for marring his plan to peacefully steal the election with congressional help. So I'm not sure if that was a direct result of what the January 6th committee uncovered or if it was one of these little ripples that happens because he wanted to get out in front of the news. There are other things like that, things that are emerging perhaps as a result of the committee's work, but not directly uncovered by the committee that I think will keep happening. One of the difficult things here is that the plan to steal the election through legal means, which we've been talking about, which was widely circulated, was sort of a bit of a joke in legal terms, right? You had before the January 6th insurrection, you had case after case being thrown out by judges because they were sort of embarrassingly thin, you know, poorly argued. You know, there was no evidence at all that the Trump side could bring to prove that uh, the elections had been fraudulent or, or whatever it was they were claiming. And that side of things was a kind of a laughing stock. But then you have the refusal of Republican representatives in the House to certify the election, which is, a, I think, a really serious breach of democratic norms. And then you have the insurrection at the Capitol, which is also a very serious thing. But there again, the connection between Trump and what happens, I think we have to be kind of clear about what it is, right? Trump gives this speech at about midday on January the 6th, in which he tells people to go to the Capitol and protest against the certification of the elections. People then do that in a violent way. There are bits of Trump's speech where he says people should protest peacefully. So if you're a Trump supporter, you can point to that and say, listen, he wasn't encouraging people to go and smash up the Capitol uh, and to kidnap Mike Pence. But where it seems to be Trump is most culpable is that there is this, what is it, about a four-hour delay between him giving that speech, the violence at the Capitol, and then many hours later, he puts out this really odd video where he sort of praises the people who've invaded the Capitol but tells them to go home. And so, to my mind, the thing that Trump is most culpable of on that day is a failure to intervene, a failure to prevent a violent situation that I think he could have prevented, or at least a failure to even try to do so, right? And that's one of the things that comes through most clearly in these text messages that the January 6th committee has got hold of, particularly the ones from the Fox News hosts to Mark Meadows, and even from Donald Trump Jr. to Mark Meadows, imploring Trump to step in and say something, saying this has gone too far, he's got to say something, this is damaging us. It's very interesting the way the Fox people talk about we and us. And Trump does nothing, right? That's where, to my mind at least, he's most culpable. Do you think that's right? Or do you guys think I've got that wrong? 
I think that's mostly right, but it's not just a situation that he could have prevented. It's a situation that he clearly provoked, right? He has been saying for months that Biden is a senile communist. He's been telling people the Democrats are going to fundamentally rechange the country. He gets a rally full of people who are riled up and says, they're stealing your election. March to the Capitol. Go fight. You'll never have a country if you don't fight. You know, I think it's pretty clear that he knew what he was doing. Well, I think the big takeaway from January 6th was there has always been a question of Donald Trump between what we should view as theater and what we should take seriously. This has been the question about him since he first started undermining the idea that Barack Obama is a legitimate president, right? How much do you dismiss as theatrics? How much do you dismiss as bombast? And what happened on January 6th is that the bombast, the rhetoric became action. And that's why you had specific members of Congress saying, this is what you get. This is what you get when you follow someone who talks like this. This is the result. This is not a surprise. So what the January 6th committee has revealed further, which I think was evident already from Trump's public rhetoric, but now we have um, more of a private understanding, is both how seriously within the White House they were actually talking about changing the result of the election and coming up with strategies to do so, and the degree to which Trump, even implored by Fox News hosts and his own children, the extent to which he put his own political future above that of the country. I mean, it's very, very explicit. And so I don't think any of these things are truly earth shattering, but they are nevertheless revealing and important. Okay, well, we'll find out what an 1887 law has to do with a capital attack in a moment. But first, there'll be lots to enjoy from The Economist in 22. Some of it, hopefully, more upbeat than our recent cover story about the Republican Party and American democracy on the anniversary of January the 6th. To read all of those stories, you'll need to subscribe. Of course, this week's issue has a great cover story about what Vladimir Putin is up to in Ukraine, a particularly menacing cover image. If you're fascinated by America but feel you've overdosed on American politics recently, there are some really interesting stories in the US section, one on global Mormon missionaries and another one on how medical schools are teaching about gender. Checks and balance listeners will find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode. So normally at this point in the episode, we delve into the archives to see what an event from history can tell us about our topic of the week. But this week, John, you've done that for me. It's over to you. Yeah, so this has to do with the role of Congress in presidential elections and what was happening inside the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Madam Speaker, members of Congress. As the mob gathered outside, Mike Pence was counting votes. Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Alabama? It's the vice president's job to preside over the joint session of Congress at which each state's electoral college votes are opened and counted and a president's victory certified. The Electoral Count Act of 1887 explains how to resolve any disputes during this process. It was passed following a fractious election a decade earlier. That election in 1876 ended with the Democrat, Samuel Tilden, ahead of his Republican rival, Rutherford B. Hayes, in the popular vote, but one Electoral College vote short of victory. In Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, racist violence and electoral fraud cast the results into dispute. A switch in the votes from those states would give Hayes victory. 
After weeks of argument and negotiation, a compromise emerged. Southern Democrats would accept Hayes' victory, and in exchange, he would withdraw most federal troops from the South. This effectively ended the progress of Reconstruction and consigned African-American Southerners to decades of disenfranchisement. Ten years later, Congress passed the Electoral Count Act. It let legislators formally object to the results from a state, provided each objection is signed by at least one senator and one representative. If majorities in both chambers uphold the objection, the votes in question aren't counted. The idea was to formalize the process for disputing electoral votes, avoiding the discord of 1876, and protecting the democratic process in a close election. The Electoral Count Act is confusing and muddled, and that makes it easy to abuse. A memo from John Eastman, a lawyer advising the Trump campaign, suggested that the law would let Vice President Pence refuse to accept results from a handful of states and give the election to Donald Trump, the very thing the act was brought in to stop. The Electoral Count Act needs reform, and the January 6th House Select Committee is working on legislation to do so. Jamie Raskin is one of the Democrats on the committee. We agree with that, that this law could be tightened up to make sure nothing like 2020, January 6th, ever happens again. And that means we can tighten up the procedures for objections, for voting on objections, and for making sure that the popular will is vindicated. Some Republicans, including the usually obstructionist Mitch McConnell, have also expressed openness to revising the act. Democrats are wary. They worry that this is a ruse to weaken support for broader voting rights bills which it might be, but that doesn't make it not worth doing. Amending a 135-year-old law is less dramatic than exposing damning evidence about the involvement of a former president and his inner circle in an attempted coup. But it could be the January 6th committee's best hope of avoiding a repeat of the events of that dreadful day and protecting democracy in America. John, when Joe Biden won the presidential election and Democrats won majorities in both houses of Congress, there was a renewed interest in electoral reform in America, at least on the Democratic side. And lots of people hoped that there might be some kind of bipartisan deal along the lines sketched out by Joe Manchin, whereby Republicans would get something they really wanted, which is more voter ID, use of voter ID in elections. And Democrats would get things that they wanted, such as making it easier for people to vote, expanded access to postal voting, etc. Even that bipartisan deal, which seems kind of sensible to us, seems to be too difficult for Congress to do, right? But as you say, people in the last week or so have been talking about the Electoral Count Act and perhaps revisiting that. How much difference would it actually make to elections, do you think, if the Electoral Count Act were reformed, changed in a, in a way that you might find desirable. I mean, how would 2020 have gone with a different law in place, do you think? If the Electoral Count Act had made clear, had made explicit what I think is clearly implicit, which is that the vice president cannot simply decide to ignore a state's results because he doesn't like the outcome, even with a sort of fig leaf of an alternate slate of electors, if it had made clear that the results of the state were binding, then you wouldn't have seen what happened in 2020 happen. But to the broader question of whether changing the Electoral Count Act would forestall this sort of chicanery in the future, I, I mean, I certainly hope so. But the truth is, 
laws only work because people want them to work, right? The Constitution works because we all sort of believe it should work. There's nothing magic or talismanic about it. So that if you have a party that prizes winning power more than it prizes democracy, then that party will do what it wants to do. You'll see a different sort of chicanery. So I think it is necessary and helpful to revise this act. I think it would be a good exercise in bipartisanship. I think it would help forestall the precise sort of chicanery that we saw in 2020. But will that act in itself restore the Republicans' commitment to democracy? I don't think so. That commitment will be as strong as people want it to be. Charlotte, one of the paradoxes here, I think, is this law, which people are now keen to reform, makes it harder to object to election results that have been certified in states. And that seems like a good thing if you look at how things went in 2020. But for the past year, we've been reporting and writing about the ways in which election administration is being changed in states in America, and particularly in places like Georgia. And so you might be in a situation in 2024, where let's hope this doesn't happen. Perhaps it's, you know, catastrophizing even to think about it. But, you know, where a state wrongly certifies an election result. In that case, you sort of want a mechanism by which Congress can call that result into question, right? So to some extent, this seems to me to be the right reform, but potentially at the at the wrong time. What What are your views? Well, I think it's worth bearing in mind the public opinion about January 6th, both about the work of the committee and about the event itself. Because if you look at the polling on this, 40% of Republicans approve of the committee. Um, That's about half the share of Democrats who do. But I was actually surprised that Republican support was that high. And most Republicans think that the storming of the Capitol was a bad thing. But the second issue is whether people think that there was fraud and that whether Biden was elected in part through fraud. And more than two-thirds of Republicans told NPR recently that they thought that voter fraud did help Biden win. Other polls have that share even higher. And so you have both parties thinking that democracy is in crisis, but for different reasons. And I think that some of what's discussed in Washington is interesting, but less substantive than the reforms that are being passed that have to do with making sure that the people's will is heard or not on the state level because of the continued allegations of fraud in the 2020 election, you have states across the country passing various measures that are supposedly to enhance the security of elections and restore confidence to electoral results, which um, Democrats argue actually does the opposite. And so I think that you have this really bizarre and, and unfortunate situation where a huge share of the country thinks that democracy in some way is fundamentally broken, and they have opposite ideas for how to remedy that. And John, I guess one of the issues we keep coming back to here when it comes to election law in America is that you have elections to federal offices like the president, Congress and the Senate, where the rules are to a large degree set by states. And it's pretty hard to get around that problem. In a way, I think, given the way things are going, you might even say that's that's a good thing, because it means there's not a single point of failure. But you know that's something that people who would want to reform the Electoral Count Act have to reckon with, right? It is. I don't think it's a problem that states set their own election rules. I think that's broadly a good thing. You're right to point out, as you did before, that you want some sort of mechanism for reviewing state results that 
may not be on the level for whatever reason. I think the question is whether Congress is the proper venue to hash out those objections. I think it's certainly not in a joint session like that where you have such a brief time to debate and where people's positions are clearly driven by party preference, by an interest in the outcome. I think that one possible reform to the Electoral Count Act would be to make clear that the courts are the proper venue for airing out election disputes where you have to present actual evidence and arguments. I think that's a more productive way to answer questions about state-level chicanery than simply a single objection in Congress. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, an objection might be that that would lead to further politicization of the courts, but it seems to me that that's a better way to go than what we have currently. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to look at the Republican Party's response to the events of January the 6th. I've been speaking to Sarah Longwell, who's a longtime Republican strategist and now the publisher of the center-right politics website, The Bulwark. Prior to Donald Trump coming on the scene, I was pretty firmly ensconced in the Republican policy and political right. And it wasn't until Donald Trump was elected that I sort of sought out rooms that were filled with other sad Republicans like me. And it took us a while to figure out what we were going to do. And we knew that our job was really to try to fight Donald Trump from the inside of the party, which is what we did. Sarah, there was a moment after January the 6th when it felt like what was left of the institutional Republican Party after four years of Donald Trump, the Mitch McConnell wing of the party, had this opportunity to break with Donald Trump. And instead, those members of the Senate and members of the House made a calculation, which was that, well, Trump's popularity was going to decline. And so, and maybe Republican voters would turn against him after what had happened at the Capitol. And so they didn't need to impeach him. You know, he would, his political power would fade, and he'd sort of go away of his own accord. So was that just a spectacular political miscalculation on their part? Or was there... Or was there something more complicated going on? I think it's mostly that. I think it is mostly that the Republican Party thought that external events were always going to rid them of Donald Trump, right? This has been the bet from the beginning. They all kind of hoped Hillary Clinton would win and they wouldn't have to deal with Donald Trump and they could just rail against her. The thing to understand about the Republican party's posture, the institutional Republican Party's posture to Donald Trump is that they want him to go away, but they know it can't be by their hand. And so they are unwilling to to impeach him, to condemn him, but they wanted, so they were trying to have it both ways in that moment where they could keep their hands clean of being the ones to, to end Trump and to keep him from being able to come back in power by impeaching him. Uh, but they also wanted his power to be significantly diminished by that day so that they could move past him and no longer had to contend with him. But they've made the same miscalculation the entire way through his presidency. And they made it just more spectacularly so on January 6th uh, or, or in the aftermath of January 6th, where that really was their last best chance to wrest the party from control of Donald Trump. Had just a few more Republicans voted to impeach uh, in the Senate, then he, could not, he, he wouldn't be able to run for president again. He wouldn't be right now 
everybody's best bet on who the Republican nominee in 2024 is going to be. Um, and so they they decided against it because they made the same bad miscalculation that they've made for the entirety of Trump's existence within the Republican Party, which is that something else is going to make him go away and that they're not going to have to do anything about it. They are going to have to do something about it unless they're going to condemn him directly and take direct action. He's not going away. Can I ask about the Republican Party and democracy? There's been a lot of alarm, particularly on the centre-left in America, but also a certain amount on the centre-right about whether the Republican Party under Donald Trump has taken an anti-democratic turn. And the people who make that case often point to the polling that shows a very high share of Republican voters saying the election was stolen, you know, 70%, or sometimes it's a fraction higher. And there's a way that you can look at that number and say, these people no longer accept election results and America's democracy is in peril. And there's another way you can look at that and say, well, actually, these people are trying to, in, in their terms at least, they're trying to defend democracy. You know, they think that there was something fishy about the results and they're standing up for democracy. So it's not quite true to say that they've taken a, an anti-democratic turn because they are, in, you know, as I say, in their own terms, they think they're standing up for democracy. So how do you make sense of those arguments? Which do you think is, is closer to the truth? The problem is in part the voters, right? There's, there's this, I call it the Republican triangle of doom. Uh, and it is the toxic and symbiotic relationship between Republican elected officials, the infotainment, right-wing media, and the voters. And they are all looping back to each other with a kind of misinformation. The voters demand that uh, that elected officials say that the election was stolen. So more elected officials say that the election was stolen, which provides more credibility and convinces more people that the election was in fact stolen. And the right-wing media is there inciting it all from, from the jump. And so um, I, I, I understand and think that it is true that actually many of the voters believe that they're doing the right thing. You know, when when the people who attacked the Capitol were saying 1776, they saw themselves as revolutionary safeguarding democracy. It is, it is, it is an insane thing what they did, but they are being told a lie that they genuinely believed that drove them to that. And the people who bear responsibility are the elected officials who continue to pour toxic poison into people's brains that lie to people. Um, and one of the things that I have found really disturbing and frustrating in the aftermath of January 6th is that there, many of the people who attacked the Capitol are being prosecuted, rightly. We're seeing many of them prosecuted. But the people who told them the lie that drove them to those actions, there's been no accountability for those people. In fact, many of them are thriving and continue to tell the lie today. Sarah, you're in the business, as we've already said, of opposing Trump from within the Republican Party, or at least from the centre-right. I feel like we've learned a lot over the past few years about what doesn't work when opposing Donald Trump. He's a very difficult political opponent. So what do you think might work over the next few years? How have you refined your strategy and your approach? You have to support what's left of the pro-democracy Republicans. Now, there are very few of them, but there are a couple, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, uh, to name the top ones, who are basically about ready to go on a kamikaze mission for democracy. They are not 
interested in getting reelected to anything. They see the threat clearly, and they have clearly devoted themselves to making that case. And I want to do everything I can to support them right down to Liz Cheney running for president. I'll do whatever it takes uh, to help elevate that. And look, does she only appeal to a small fraction of the party at this point? Probably. But Donald Trump only appealed to a small fraction of the party when he started. And so I believe strongly that leadership is going to make a difference. People telling the truth is always the best place to start. And much of the Donald Trump era has been defined by people refusing to say the truth, refusing to say what they believe. And so supporting the Republicans who are doing that is 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 a big part of it. Charlotte, Sarah there mentioned Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, who are the two Republicans who are on the committee. There's a way that you can look at their predicament and the fact that they are both in the process, frankly, of being ejected from the Republican Party and they're treated like pariahs by other Republicans. You can look at that and say this shows the dominance of Donald Trump and the direction of the Republican Party. And that's that's true. But it's also easy to kind of therefore downplay their importance and, and their know, sort of moral and political significance here, right? It really matters that there are two Republicans on this committee. And it really matters that there are some Republicans who are willing to stand up and challenge Donald Trump and his versions of events in 2020 and on January the 6th head on and not be cowed in the way that so many Republicans have been. I agree with you that it's very important that there are Republicans who are in office who are standing up for democratic principles and who are calling out the former president's behavior. I, though, remain struck that there really are so few Republicans who are willing to do that. Adam Kinzinger isn't running again. Liz Cheney seems likely to lose her Republican primary in Wyoming. James Astle, our colleague who we heard earlier in the podcast, he had a briefing about the Republican Party last week, which was just absolutely fantastic. If you haven't read it, you should. It's such a scorcher. Um, But he talks about how the biggest cheers at Wyoming State Fair Parade in August were when there was a hot-rodded car with an expletive Liz Cheney on it, and that that got the biggest cheers of all. The moderates are really leaving the Republican Party. Pat Toomey's retiring, Richard Burr, Rob Portman. These are all moderate Republican senators who are retiring. And so what do you have left? You know, you have, um, as James put it in his briefing, Kevin McCarthy, who is really pro-maniac. He's not trying to control the more outlandish members of his party. He's he's happy to let them run free. So I remain most struck by that, even though I do concede that it is important that there are Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger out there. Um, it's still really striking the degree to which they're alone. Sarah talked about the desires of the institutional Republican Party for Trump to go away. I'm not sure that institutional Republican Party really exists anymore. If it does, it's much diminished since 2016. I think she's right about people wanting Trump to go away. I think Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley would be happy to see Trump disappear, but that's because they kind of want to be Trump, to be in that position, not because they think that Trump is particularly damaging to democracy or to the American way of life. So I think that one of the missions of the Trumpist wing of the party has been to purge that wing that Sarah remembers very fondly. I think that to that extent, when you think about the January 6th commission right now, 
Kinzinger and Cheney are the only Republicans on it. And I think the conventional wisdom is that the Republicans will disband it when they take over Congress in 2023. I don't think that's necessarily true. I suspect that if Republicans retake Congress, you may see them vote to continue that committee, but to pervert its mission, to effectively use it to further the lie that January 6th was some sort of deep state op designed to make Trump supporters look bad. Yes, and John, later this year, Republicans are very likely to win a majority in the House in the midterms, and I think pretty likely to win a majority in the Senate also, at which point they'll be able to set up their own committees. And with this infusion of Trump-style Republicans in both chambers, but particularly in the House where seats turn over much faster, it's pretty likely they'll set up all sorts of committees, maybe even one looking to impeach Joe Biden, you know, to examine the election results on their own terms, etc. So for those who like following the workings of House committees, the next few years are going to be very busy. I guess there's a a broader point, which is, why are we still talking about January 6th? And Biden was kind of trying to get at this in his speech that he gave to the country to reiterate what actually happened that day and underline that it was a bad thing. But you see in the response, I think, to the events of January 6th and to the perpetuation of the idea that Joe Biden was unlawfully elected, that there is a basic subjugation of truth, a comfort with lies, and also with the politicians who peddle them by people who know better, but who see it as politically advantageous to continue to perpetuate some of these falsehoods. And so the reason why there's an investigation in the first place, you know, what's the point, is to hold people accountable and to try to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And so if you neither acknowledge the truth nor hold anyone accountable and continue to perpetuate the idea that an election was unlawfully seized, What's to think that January 6th won't happen again? I'm not saying that it definitely will, but I don't feel confident that it definitely won't. And so a year on, I'm not really sure how much has changed in terms of the political environment that might lead to something else really alarming happening at some point in the future. Yeah, Charlotte, I agree with that. It's worth noting briefly before we wrap this up that about 700 people have been charged for their part in the insurrection, putsch, riot, whatever you want to call it, on January the 6th. But none of them elected politicians or senior figures in the Republican Party who had a hand in spreading the notion or lie that the election was stolen. Okay, before I let you guys go, it's quiz time. You'll remember that for our Christmas episode, which is great, please go back and listen to it if you haven't already. We asked you, our fantastic listeners, to provide the quiz questions. Thank you to everyone who did that. And special thanks to Artin, whose questions we thought we would save for this, our first episode of 2022, and who I think may win the title of our youngest Checks and Balance listener. Hello, my name is Artin. I'm nine and I live in Center Valley, Pennsylvania. I love trivia about U.S. presidents, and I listen to the quiz at the end of Checks and Balance every Friday with my dad. Here are my questions. Question one. Which president had the shortest presidency? I think it was Benjamin Henry Harrison, wasn't it? That sounds right. There was a game show in the U.S. called Are You Smarter Than the Fourth Grader? Now I know. The answer is is no. This is probably going to be no. It's going to be embarrassing. (laughs) Answer. William Henry Harrison, the ninth president of the United States. He also delivered the longest inaugural speech in history, around 8,450 words, in cold and wet weather 
and refused to wear any protection. He fell ill soon after and died 31 days later. I did not know that piece of history, and it is so sad that his eagerness to address the nation is what did him in. <laughs> and to appear robust and not wear a coat. Yeah. Fazman, I think you get half a point there for mangling the name, but you did correctly identify the president. Fair enough. I think we should dwell on the fact that he got the name wrong. (laughs) I think, I mean, I just want to express my horror as a Jewish parent at the idea of going out without a coat for that long and wet weather. (laughs) Right, question two. Harry S. Truman was the 33rd president of the United States. What did the middle initial S stand for? Nothing. So good, Fazman. So good. Nothing. It's just S to honor his grandfathers, Solomon Young and Andrew Ship Truman. Thank you for choosing my questions. I didn't know that it was named to honor his grandfather, so I'm inclined to give Artin a point for that one, too. I think Artin gets all the points here, but I also think you've satisfied our collective honor, John, by by getting a point and a half. So well done to you. It's a good way to start the new year. It is. Infinite points for Artin. Artin's dad also emailed a picture of them to us, which is greatly appreciated. Okay, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Speak to you both soon. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you to our producers, Harriet Noble and Nicola Rolfast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week. those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.